Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the tree. Stop and hear what I say. As we head on around back, Mr. John Eisenhower, ISA certified arborist. We find him with a prod this morning out there with his irrigation and his sprinklers and checking checking your soil depth, your, your moisture depth there, Mr. Eisenhower. My favorite tools around with me. I decided to bring in my soil probe. It's so cool. It just came in the mail the other day and it's uh, I get, I tend to they, they tend to grow legs. I've had several of them over the years. And when I find a uh, someone who can use one, I tend to just give them away as as just gifts because they're such a handy tool, and they're really nice fiberglass, four feet long, have a metal tip on the end and a T handle, and you can push them down into the soil to to check your water depth, and they're just such a a, a reason, just a very a, a, an amazing tool at a very reasonable cost. They're only about twenty five to twenty six dollars, and they are one of the most useful tools for determining whether you're getting the water down to the full depth of the root zone on your trees and shrubs. You can guess all you want about how long you should be putting your water on, but a soil probe lets you know exactly how deep you're getting that watering. And for your ground cover and your and your small shrubs, you only need about six inches of depth of soil, maybe eight or ten. For your larger larger trees, maybe eighteen inches. For your for large you know your larger trees and uh, uh, you know, any anywhere from two to three feet of depth of soil. Well, you can't really t- t- test the water unless you have something to push down into the soil. So these um, fiberglass soil probes are just really handy to have. So, yeah, I brought mine in today. It's kind of fun. It's a, it's a um, my favorite tool. I'm going to carry it around with me for a couple of days. It's just uh, <laughs> it'll it'll find its way in the cross box on the back of my pickup truck in the next couple of days. We got to get some dirt on that soil. I do. Pro looks too clean. <laughs> way too clean. I bought one last year and it did change everything on our watering. Yeah. It, it, they are amazing. And then, uh, it, you know what else is really interesting is after a good deep soak deep soaking watering two three days later you can still push that probe and it's amazing to see how moist that stays underground well the the amazing thing is is that the surface soil the top couple of inches can be baked as hard as as hard Mm -hmm. as clay and usually it is clay it's like concrete but if you'll just dig past that that layer of of hardened soil on the surface then you'll get in you'll realize that our soil has a very high water holding capacity and there's lots of moisture down there so don't just um, base your watering uh, on the dryness of the surface soil you've got to get that soil probe to to go past that crust on the surface down past that and you'll find out gosh my soil probe goes in real easily now if you if you push past that surface soil and you you can't get that probe to go in at all you'll know that your soil is very dry and, and you, you need to get some water on it. So uh, that soil probe is really handy for that, from that standpoint. You can, of course, you can take a shovel and dig down and find, and find that soil, but that's pretty disruptive. The soil probe makes it a lot easier. And the four-foot soil probe, which we love, uh, saves your back too because if you're going to be pushing that probe into the soil two or three feet, you don't want to be bending over all the way to the ground because they have these little three-foot ones and which we co- commonly will put all the way into the ground, right to the handle. And that, that's pr- kind of hard on your back. These four-footers are kind of nice because you're not going to usually be going much below about three feet. 
The soil probe, uh, an arborist must have, I understand. Yes, it is. Must have tool. And we are talking trees here this Saturday morning. If you'd like to join the conversation, one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. There's an extra layer to do that. Just hit zero when you hear the auto attendant come on, and that'll bypass the message and get you straight into the studio. And you've also got uh, your special guest in with you, your right hand man. I do our mystery guest of the morning. Our mystery guest is is Stephen Price, a good friend and colleague of mine and the branch manager at Integrity Savetry, soon to be, I should say. I'm actually officially the branch manager, but Stephen is training uh, to step into my role, and he's doing a great job of it right now, and, and uh, it's just a matter of a couple of months. He's going to be fully um, flying solo and doing a great job. Steve, welcome to the studio today. Thank you. It's great to be here, as always. I uh, just absolutely love it. Well, I just wanted to... Add, do you mind if I interview you this morning? No, please, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I know you, but do Can I really know you? Do I know who you are? I think you do. We're going to find out a little bit more right now. Yeah. Um, tell me wh- how you got started in the green industry. You know, it's really cool. Um, uh, my dad uh, was a contractor, a small-time contractor growing up. And so I grew up, you know, digging and doing concrete work and doing this and that. Whatever he, he was, a, he could do anything. And so I grew up passing flyers out with them and helping them on the jobs and clover leafing, you know, at a long, young age. And uh, what's what's clover leafing? Well, that's when you kind of go out you, when you're doing a job and then you uh, pass out flyers or, or, or paperwork about what the services you offer to the neighboring homes right. around the job you're doing. And uh, and so I actually drummed up a lot of work for him. Look at this nice young man, you know, coming to the door and I'd <laughs> knock on the door and introduce myself and give a flyer. So anyway, so I kind of grew up in that environment, and then as uh, as we got older and we moved to Arizona, uh, my dad started slowly getting into more of actual landscaping, and he kind of fell in love with plants and trees out here in the desert, and uh, it was really cool. I remember driving around with him as a teenager, and he'd go, son, that is an acacia stenophylla, and you know, he he was really <laughs> getting into it, and it was, so, it was bothersome at the time, but we, he did it so much that it started to just soak in yeah and i just fell in love with uh plants and trees and that's kind of how it got started did you, yeah. did you eventually uh move on educationally did you I, I know you're a certified arborist um was that part of that whole process um it was yeah yeah so what happened was um, as soon as uh, i was graduating from high school my older brother uh, was in town now he moved from connecticut he grew up with my mom and then he moved out here, and my dad said, hey, you know, that you should start a lawn business because it's just I see these guys around, and this was back in the 80s. And uh, and my brother was, uh, you know, he was pretty uh, entrepreneurial. Uh, he didn't even finish, I don't know what grade, but he had a really good knack for business, and uh, he started this lawn business. And I just graduated from high school, and he said, hey, I got a few accounts. Why don't you help me out? And I said, hey, I really want to go to college, you know, but I'll help you out, you know, so make a little extra money. And so that's kind of how it all started. We started mowing lawns. And next thing you know, again, he was a master and we had like 200 accounts in the Moon Valley area. And within just a couple of years and we were mowing tons of grass every day. Yeah. And and uh, and then I started going to college part time. And that was my goal is to go to college. So did a few years of college uh, in the community college system here, Scottsdale Community College, where I mostly went. And got my two years done towards business. I wanted to be a businessman. I didn't want to cut grass. You know, I wanted, I would grow up to be sure. a businessman. 
um, and take it a little farther than my dad did. And then, uh, but boy, once that green gets in you and that grass gets in your nostrils and you, you, you used to, it's just something happened. And, uh, and I just, uh, quit after two years going to school and just kept landscaping and having fun. Is there anyone in particular who was an inspiration to you along the way? Yeah. Again, mostly my dad. He was, uh, he was, uh, just an amazing inspiration. I know that's kind of a lot of people say that, but he truly was just as an entrepreneur. He worked really, really hard for us um, to get us, you know, through um, some really difficult times. And so I really respected him and and just kind of got that hard work ethic from him early on. But at the same time, I have to really give kudos um, to a couple other people, and that would be my brother, like I just said, who really um, just was amazing at business and uh, and taught me a lot about. Uh, reaching farther than you think you can be. And then, and then I have to give kudos to also the, the Pike family, uh, Mike Pike and his family and uh, Jimmy Castine over at another big landscape firm. I hope somebody tells them I'm mentioning them because they really changed my life and got me into big business. And when I started with them uh, way back, they said, we need, want you to become a certified arborist and run this division. And that was kind of the life changer for that. Well, just over the last six months, you know, I've just been kind of observing you kind of stepping into this kind of new leadership role. And I'm just amazed at, at your experience because you've, you've had some experience in landscape construction, landscape maintenance, plant health care, you know, IPM, the you know, integrated pest management. And I've seen you uh, kind of the, the breadth of knowledge. In addition to you being a certified arborist, you've brought a lot, a lot of various skills to the to the table and as we have, uh, you know, uh, various service offerings, it's kind of nice to see the, the breadth of uh, background you brought to the table, and I'm pretty excited. Uh, tell me a little bit about what, what do you enjoy? What, what makes you uh, tick? What's your, what's your passion? You know, that's funny because uh, I think that's why it shows is I'm really passionate about um, plants and trees, really passionate. I mean, it just really, really got into me. Um, when I don't know some, I want to know. I remember customers asking me when I was young and take, Steve, what, what is this plant? You know, and I stopped the lawnmower and I'd be like, uh, I don't know. I'll find out for you, you know? (laughs) And so I would quickly look it up and I would tell them the next time. So that kind of, so my passion really is plants and trees. Other than that, uh, and ties right in with that. I love being a dad has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I always wanted to be a dad and I have three beautiful daughters um, uh, a variety of ages, um, and uh, and being a dad is, is well, a grandchild. Now, too. Yeah, and, and now and now a grandchild from the three daughters, and uh, and that leads me into, you know, when I became an arborist, it was natural for me to move towards structural pruning of young trees, which is you know if we say we had a specialty, you know that that would be what I and I tracked a lot of trees that I pruned over the years, going through those, like you said, doing the maintenance and then landscape construction. Um, and then big time maintenance and then big time construction, you know, from residential to commercial, um, and kind of got that whole, you know, breadth of knowledge through those experiences. And then again, becoming an arborist and going deeper into that, I just fell in love with that. Again, that growing up young trees and and true sustainability from, from, you know, the onset, you know, from the beginning. And we're talking trees. If you'd like to join the conversation, one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. Just hit zero when the auto attendant answers, and that'll bypass the message, get you right into the studio. You can send text questions to 411 923. 
Or uh, if you need a little help with plant or insect identification, you can snap a picture on your smartphone and forward that to info at rosyonthehouse.com. Any and all tree questions, we've got the experts in studio this hour. And when we get back uh, from the break, we're going to talk about the tree of the month, the sugar bush. Mr. Steve Price, we're going to let you talk about the tree of the month, which, of course, Gary found a song that tied into it, the Sugar Bush Tree. <laughs> that was a great song. I was rocking out. Um, yeah, the Rus Ovada. I know uh, John mentioned it the other day, and I immediately said, isn't that a Rus? And uh, somehow I knew that because I really, really like that plant. And a lot of times in the urban landscape, you just kind of see it more as a, a medium-sized bush, um, really cool. I think it, uh, it's an evergreen. It's not deciduous. Uh, and it reminds me of a cross between a privet, if you want to look that up, a photinia, and an Indian hawthorn. Now, an Indian hawthorn stays really small usually, raphiolepsis. Uh, Fotinia can, can get pretty good size. And then, of course, privet, all different sizes. There's even privet trees. But this Rusovada, um, it can, again, you can see it just as a normal-sized bush or it can become a really cool small tree. And it often grows on the sides of uh, canyon washes and kind of the mid-level uh, uh, desert areas uh, naturally. And you've probably seen them and just didn't even know what it was. It gets a really pretty bloom on it. And again, if you looked up those other species, I told you, you'd kind of get an idea as well. Um, What's kind of nice about them is yeah. as you get up into the little higher elevations in the desert, they are native uh, in Arizona, California, and Mexico. Correct. But as you look out across the desert landscape, like up in Desert Mountain, Cave Creek, Carefree, you'll see the typical mesquites, polyverdes, and ironwoods. Then all of a sudden, you'll see this dark green tree, and you wonder. You know, you look out across there, and they just pop out. Yes. You know, um, out of the landscape because they're very unique. But that's usually a sugar bush. They're dark green. They stay dark green all year. They don't lose their leaves in the summer like others. And they're just a um, uh, just a beautiful accent tree. I've seen several of our customers use them um, on corners of homes, and they're usually planting out at what about ten to fifteen feet maximum height. Generally, in the probably six to eight foot range is pretty common, more like a shrub. But as you said, the 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 customer we have in Desert Mountain has a couple that are trimmed up beautifully, like a small tree, mm-hmm. so you can actually walk underneath them and um, just a, a really attractive. Uh, glossy green, shiny yep. green leaf, and uh, more like a, a, a mesic landscape type plant. Right, kind of like a privet. Yeah, that's yeah. if you look at look at the privets. But in, if they're happy and growing wild, you know, in the in the canyons, they can get thirty feet tall and thirty feet wide. Usually more wide, maybe twenty feet tall and thirty feet wide, like a big sprawling bush. Yeah. Like you said, driving down the highways, you might look out. Those are really big if you get up to them. But again, in the urban landscape, they're much more, you know, controlled. You know, they're in a different kind of environment. Evergreen, I want to mention that. We had a question on that even this morning, and it often comes up. Evergreen, a lot of people think of pines and junipers and evergreens. But when when arborists are talking about evergreens, we mean 
any plant or tree that's not deciduous, not necessarily just an evergreen, which we often know, again, as pines, junipers, right. plants Con- like that. Con- but anything that's not deciduous, losing its leaves and a period or a cycle, then we call it evergreen. It means it keeps its leaves all year long. Yep. It's evergreen. And it's a good low water use plant as being a, a native desert plant. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah, very low water use. Once it's established, it's pretty amazing, actually, how little water it does need. Yeah, you don't see them too often in our Sonoran low desert with the creosotes. They do require a little bit higher desert elevations, like up around the North Scottsdale, Cave Creek, Carefree, a little further up the freeway toward Black Canyon City. Those little higher elevations, New River, are going to see a few more of those in the open desert. And if you got one in your yard, you're lucky because they're pretty cool. And a lot of times the elevation can be very subtle. It's sure. it's amazing how once you just start getting towards the base of a mountain, how uh, the, everything just starts to change immediately. Yeah. Well, we just love it. You know, here in Arizona, you know, you can drive in uh, several different directions out of Tucson up into the Catalinas uh, in Arizona up toward Flagstaff. And within just a two-hour drive, you can be going through five or six biomes, uh, g- different biological regions that have a different plant life. And there are a lot of biologists and geologists come to Arizona because it's one of the only places that you can go from low desert, uh, creosote low desert, all the way to alpine at the top of San Francisco Peaks in in a two-hour drive. Not too many places in the world where you can travel through like six or seven biomes um, and and just a, a casual drive up the freewheel gets you through four or five. But it's kind of nice to see that that change from the swirl cactus in the in the Palo Verdes heading up, uh, say, Beeline, and you get up into the chaparral, you start getting into the pinion pine, the junipers, the cedars, and you head up Manzanita. a little higher, the manzanitas, then up into the, the ponderosas, you start getting up higher and higher. Then if you turn the corner and head up the 260 and get up to Alpine Springerville, then you start getting into your aspen, you start getting into your firs and your spruce, and it's just, and then above, the, above that, that timber line, you know, it's just, it's awesome. I mean, you're getting all the way through every one of those uh, biomes in a short period of time. You know, we talk a lot on the show about planting to discourage wildlife. And we talk about planting if you want to encourage wildlife. I can tell you from personal experience, quail love harboring in a sugar bush. bush. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Nice. Big sprawling shrub. So if you're, up, if you're up in a little bit higher desert and you like the quail in your yard... They love spending the day in the shade of that sugar bush. <laughs> it's got good shade, too. Also, they're very frost tolerant, you know, zero degrees. They'll, they'll hang on very, very hardy. That's also great. All right, your calls when we get back. one 767 Hit zero when you hear the auto attendant. That'll bypass the message and get you right into the studio. I'll buy you tall, tall trees and all the waters in the seas. I'm a fool, fool, fool for you. Talking Trees, the ISA Certified Arborist, John Eisenhower and Steve, uh, Stephen Price. We have a laundry list of to-dos here for tree prep as we're leading into the summer, but there was one more uh, little feature about our sugar bush you wanted to mention as it relates to the color and the bloom. Yeah, we just forgot to mention that for all those people that love blooms, that they have a beautiful late winter or spring bloom. It's usually kind of a pinkish color. I believe if you look close, it's more white with uh, some red in there. So then when you look at it from a distance, it gives you that pinkish color on the bloom. So, yeah, definitely want to mention that for all the people who love the blooms. 
Yeah. Speaking of which, it's really nice to have when you begin your uh, planning for your your new new uh, landscape installation. For those of you who are moving into a new home and you're kind of uh, beginning to uh, plan out your landscape, to be thinking about the bloom cycle. Uh, and if it's a spring blooming plant, a spring blooming plant, or a fall blooming plant, also take note of the color of the bloom, so that if you want to try to organize the the landscape in such a way that you have something blooming all year long, it's wonderful. A lot of people uh, put a lot of plants in their yard and then they leave the valley uh, in April and May just when all their plants are coming into bloom and they're ne- never even here to enjoy that beautiful bloom cycle. So keep that in mind that you want to be uh, studying that information. A good place to start it would be the uh, AMWA uh, website, the uh, Arizona Municipal Water Users Association website, amwua.org, amwua.org. They have a great uh, uh, digital format uh, plant palette, and you can go through, and they'll tell you all about the bloom cycles of all the trees, shrubs, and uh, flowers, ground covers, uh, so you can uh, start there as, uh, to begin your planning of your landscape. And this is the time of year Arizona is a yellow state. Those Palo Verde mm-hmm. blooms are everywhere. Yes, sure. And I, we're driving, looking at the saguaros. We're getting ready to turn into a white state as all those uh, saguaro tops bloom here when we get into June. And I think it's going to be a really good year for the saguaro harvest. We had a nice wet winter, lots of water stored up in the saguaro. I think we're going to see a great bloom. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we already see it popping everywhere. And yeah, it's beautiful when we have that nice wet fall and winter. It produces a wonderful spring bloom. A lot of people who are have, have allergies and don't really care for all that bloom are, are uh, they're saying no, no more. Uh, but yeah, it, it is. There's a trade-off there with uh, that, that heavy bloom. We have a lot of uh, um, a lot of pollen in the air, and and also um, that that heavy winter rain brings a lot of weeds. So we've been dealing with weeds, weeds, and weeds, more weeds. Seems like I've gone out in my yard and I and I thought I plucked out all those weeds and I come back a, a week later and they're f- a foot high, again. I have, I have I do have this kind of a mulch base, so it's a very easy place for weeds to root. But thank goodness they're also easy to pull up because if you put down a bunch of wood la- wood chips all over your yard, uh, the, the weeds can get in there, but they're so easy to pull out as opposed to the desert, the, the, the clay desert soil, and those roots get in, get in there and that, that soil dries out, uh, you need something uh, to dig them out with, a hula hoe or something more drastic, like a stick of dynamite or something. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. I, I had to run up to the White Mountains Thursday over to little Nutrioso, Arizona, and uh, so I drove through most of those geozones you were talking about, and the yellow between Saguaro Lake and sunflower is absolutely unbelievable. It is absolutely stunning. It yeah. is gorgeous. And every reservoir between Payson and Greer is filled to the, the brim. rim. Beautiful. And every forest is closed to forest fires. Wow. wow. And that's a COVID situation. I asked the Forest Service guy up in Alpine. I said, what's that about? This is as green as I've ever seen it. I've been here 50 years. He said, well, we can't risk having a project fire that sure. involves setting up oh. uh, 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 a base mess halls and base camps and yeah. putting all those guys that close together. Sure. So we've just shut the forest down for fires now just to avoid that situation. 
But the well, forest is getting a break here because it's oh, it's getting a big stay. drink, man. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's ab. This is a beautiful time of year. To take a little, take a little scenic drive right now. Well, you know, I do love that place. Right when you go past the Four Peaks turnoffs, the Swore Lake turnoff, and you, you climb up that big boulder pile. Boulder of, pile. And and when you top up on the top of that and drop down into that first canyon, you look over onto the right side. That's one of my 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 first memories as a ten year old. You know, when we moved here and just coming up over that top of that hill and looking down into that first little valley on the right. So Mes- beautiful. Mesquite Walk. Mesquite Walk. Is that right? That's okay. Right. Mesquite right? Walk. That, that's my favorite place. It's, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great drive. In fact, if you want to, you know, uh, go up there, you could just go up and down that highway two or three times in, in a day. Go down, come back up, go down, go back, you know, just to get to drive and see the flowers, you know. It's a beautiful place. And that's a great spot for saguaros as well once the bloom comes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, in thousands fact, that, on that. all along that, that whole drive up there for the next, you know, uh, 15 or 20 miles is just nothing. But, in fact, we call that one mountain, we call it uh, Pincushion Mountain because yeah. it just has all those swirls on it. You know, that one on the left side that's big volcanic one as you head to about four or five miles from that top of that little hill. Take your camera. If you're looking to start a desert landscape, that would be a great time. Uh, snap the pictures so you can talk to the arborists and local nurseries about what plants you're looking at. When you get out and start looking, there are thousands of different plants. You just don't even realize all the different varieties that are right there. And if you head up that way, you can turn off at Pumpkin Center. Does, is Apache Trail open back up? Did they get that? No, nope. no, nope. nope. Fish so, Creek is, is closed. So you'd have to come down and back home through Superior. But still, you could stop at Boyce Thompson on your way back. I was going to say, I was going to put in a plug for Boyce Thompson. I, I don't don't know how, if they have limited openings for some of these parks, like Desert Botanical Garden and and the Ar- and uh, Boyce Thompson Arboretum. But do check with them, call before you go. But I know they're open for business, but I think they might be limiting the numbers of people's and practicing some social distancing. But. And for an arboretum, they actually sell plants, too. Sure. Oh, yeah, that's a great place. I was going to say, Boyce Thompson is just a great place for purchasing plants. And, um, yeah, get up there. They'll give you lots of, you know, that'll give you lots of inspiration and ideas for coming back and putting something in your landscape. Now, I'm going to, I've got a number of text questions that have come in, but before we rifle through all of those, uh, on our talking trees, we're talking about preparing our trees for the summer. If they're new trees, uh, we don't have deep roots, thick canopies, we see a lot of trees blown over this time of year. Yeah, this is your time to do a little bit of uh, storm preparation, and, and uh, you know, Steve and I deal with this every day of the week, and um, we are, uh, Steve was talking about his passion being structural pruning of young trees. And that really has been our calling card at Integrity Tree Service and now with Save a Tree uh, is to do really good structural pruning of trees. So the best thing you can do to prepare your trees for summer is to alleviate end weight uh, and not to lion tail trees. We don't want to strip out all the interior foliage with the thought that we're going to let the air wind blow through the middle because then the, the, the force of the wind collects unevenly in the outer third of the canopy. And that makes your trees even more vulnerable to getting pulled over. So I have a mulberry that I'm really trying hard not to lion tail. But the reason we're trimming the interior is because it's the climbing tree. <laughs> so how do you do I just have to keep that thinning all the way out to the edge so that the wind Well, blows just don't do it? so much thinning until the tree's a little bit bigger. I know you're tempted to make that a climbing tree sooner, but yeah. you want to be sure that there's enough branches above the interior so that when you do trim out the interior branches, you have adequate protection from the sun. So, you, you you say tall. That tree's 30 feet tall now. 
Okay. All right. It's getting, getting tall enough. Well, you can take out some of that. You do You do want to have a climbing tree because I had a mulberry climbing tree for my kids about your kid's age, and it is a lot of fun. <laughs> the thing is what happens in the storms is all the structural defects show up. That's why we see all the broken branches and even the, you know, sometimes they'll just blow right off, you know, a couple feet from the ground even and, and break off because maybe there was a problem when it was younger, it wasn't taken care of, and it seals over that, you don't see it, and then uh, even the trunk blows apart. So, yeah, the sooner you can get in there and take care of those structural defects, you're really proving sustainability and then you try to prevent those. Again, when the storms come, the defects are going to show up no matter what. Storm prep. And then for younger trees, we see a lot of improperly staked trees to start off with. Uh, that doesn't let them build their strength, and they take the supports off, and they're the first ones that, you, know, you said, defect by, right. by, by planter error. Yeah, if you have a, a new tree that you've put in the lands, in, into your landscape recently, uh, quite often they'll come with what's called a travel stake, and it's a stake that's actually taped right to the trunk of the tree. That usually should come off as soon as the tree's planted in its final destination. That's why they're called a travel stake. In, in only Their only purpose is to get them to their final destination. But once they're in the ground, take that travel stake off. If If the tree's stable enough to stand up on its own, you should leave it alone because that's the best thing for the tree to begin to 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 move in the wind gently um, and it'll get it'll send a message to the roots to get active in the soil. But if you feel like it's a little bit too top heavy, you can gently uh, tie it to a stake. You know, put the stakes in just outside the planting pit. Put a couple of stakes into the side, and then with a a soft tie material of some sort, um, tie it tie it loosely. Um, the stakes are there to prevent catastrophic failure. They're not there to prevent it from moving. You want to the tree should have a little bit of movement on the staking system. There's an art to to design to to installing a stake properly, you don't want to tie it so rigidly that the tree just sits there and can never move. Uh, but you don't want it to be so loose that it pulls the staking system over either. So uh, you want to hold it firmly but gently, and and usually we use a very soft tie material. Old t-shirt t-shirts are kind of nice. You want to tear some nice strips off of those. They make a really nice soft. See, it's not gonna it's not gonna tear the bark. I like up. that. Yeah. yeah. You put you put wire and stuff around them, and you, it's gonna tear the bark up of the trees real quick. Even if you put a wire through a piece of hose, that still that wire is in there in in inside. They're putting a lot of pressure on the on the cambium. So uh, we use a a, a a nylon one inch nylon uh, webbing is our typical um, product we use, but. If you have a small tree, a little bit of T-shirt material can work as well. And you see that mistake made a lot on desert native plants because they're they're trying to get them to grow up, and in their natural environment, they're they're more likely to grow out as a bush shrub type. And we're trying to grow them straight to make these shade trees over top. So they bring them and they put them out, and they've got a real weak, tall limb, and they just you know you see those stakes, and it's completely suspended; it can't even move. Uh, yeah, which is trees. how it builds its strength. Sure. So you could, you almost see, all right, this, they're going to be replacing this in a year, two years, three years. Huh? And a native tree, you should never have to replace if you plant it right properly. Sure, and, and those most of our desert trees have a weeping growth habit. The trees want to branches want to grow out and down, out and down. And you should, if you can, put that tree into a into a setting where you can allow those lower branches to stay on the tree. It's going to be much more. Uh, beneficial to the landscape and also to the tree over time. It's hard to train those trees up to be make them like a, a shade tree because they, they want to keep uh, defying your ability to make them grow up. Just 
I know you guys have a few uh, bullet points left, including pests, but let me get, uh, Victor had called in earlier, uh, did not stay on hold, and he was in Peoria, which uh, that could be any number of different terrains. I mean, you've got your city, suburbs, and then you've got all the way out to Lake Pleasant, so you've got quite a <laughs> quite a wide variety of, of landscape that this could be, but he wants to know, what, do, how do you water plant and water trees in rocky areas it's a challenge you know you got if you're in a rocky area it's going to be draining quick so you're going to have to be on top of it before your trees start to stress out you know in our heavy clay soils which have a high water holding capacity as we were saying early in the program you can water those and surprisingly they'll hold water for weeks and you don't need to be watering as often as we often think we do but with the rocky soils, they drain quickly. Water runs right past the root zone and, and out. So those are some of the hardest ones to, to manage uh, properly. That's why it's so important, like John said earlier, with the soil probe or a shovel or whatever. That's the biggest question. How much should I water? Am I watering enough? What's going on? You know, if you're not taking a, a little time to check your property, because it's different. You could be in one area. There could be hard pan in one yard. Yeah where it's solid caliche or whatever, hard pan under there, and in another yard it's draining good. Like you said, rocky could be either it's draining really, really quickly because it goes through those, the rocks come together and there's all these pore space. It goes through really quickly, or it could uh, be going through quickly but hitting hard pan, and so you have this teacup effect where it's water on the bottom. So you need to check that, you know, really. And if, uh, if you water, it's draining quickly, you still don't know if it's sitting on the bottom. You need to use a probe or something to see if it's draining. If it's draining quickly and uh, there's no water at the bottom, yeah, you just need to water a lot more. And you need to feed a lot more depending on what you plant because the nutrients get flushed <laughs> out. Yeah. They're starving. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question, 20-year-old ash tree, how many gallons of water per hour? During the summer, should I be applying? And it all depends. Right. You know, that's, that's our typical answer. It all de- and you know what it does depend on? It depends on the soil structure, the soil texture, essentially the saturation uh, depth, and, and, how, how, and, and what the water-holding capacity of the soil is. The, so it, what the, as just as Steve was saying, what would apply to the, this caller— may not apply to their neighbor, might not apply to that neighbor's neighbor, uh, you know, and you can just be a couple blocks away and have a completely different type of soil texture and structure. So you have to really, again, going back to the soil probe, uh, water your tree to what you believe is the full depth of the root zone and allow it to dry out between waterings is the ideal irrigation protocol. I'll say that again. Let the water be, put the water to the bottom of the lowest root and then don't water again until that soil profile is pretty dry. So you just have to know what that is. That might be a day for one person. It might be a week for another. It might be three or four weeks, depending on your soil. So you have to get to know your soil. Use a soil probe. That helps to know how deep that water's gone and, and how soon you need water again. That's a $25 tool. That's right. That, that you can use to manage a, entire a, landscape. A, a good tree. A good tree. A one good tree sure. can be worth thousands. Right, and Easily. we have and we have we have um, clients who have different soil in their backyard than they do in their front than in their side yard. Just 
moving a, a hundred, couple hundred feet away. You can have different soils. And if you're on a slope, some of our, our plants are on mountain uh, mountainsides, and there there's a completely <laughs> different situation there. Uh, difficult to try to you know keep plants growing well. And then trying to dial in an irrigation system and make a one station work for 50 or 60 plants, it's tough. You know, you got to get that, uh, take some time and have different dispense rates on your emitter heads and different numbers of emitter heads in the placement. And you can make it work, but it, it, it is a challenge. So the takeaway for today is it depends. It all depends. But a soil probe hurt, helps it, a lot. There you go. You got it. Yeah, and if you think about it, you know, the surrounding landscape makes a big difference. You know, is there a lot of shade? Is there other trees? How many plants are right around that tree? So it's very dynamic. You know, if there's a lot of trees and shrubs around that tree, they're getting water at each of those different places around that root zone, If it's a, especially if it's a mature tree. Yeah, and um, if, you're, if your uh, e- emitters are overlapping right, right. on neighboring plants have have saturation patterns that are actually overlapping one another that's really good because they're sharing water they're sharing that same soil space and it's it's that's something to consider because we've actually shut off the emitters that were dedicated to some of our trees because they're getting plenty of water now that their roots have gone out into the into the lawn area or into into the uh, root zones of some of the surrounding plants where they're getting some their those uh, flowers and ground covers and shrubs are being watered on a more frequent basis. So we just shut the water off on the trees because they have a dedicated station a dedicated station on the timer because we just don't need that much water, especially at the risk of getting water up against the root collar of the trees. We like to keep that root collar of the trees dry and sacrosanct because that's that can lead to all sorts of fungal issues. Now, <clears throat> itreeservice.com if you need to schedule with an arborist. 